0: Welcome to episode 14 of the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. This week, we're going to dive into a few different topics. Number one, the kind of last steps of prepping for a hunt in the week before you leave. Number two, some tips on how to properly pack a backpack for a multi-day backcountry trip. And number three, the biggie, what I think is the best bang for your buck under two grand for a rifle scope combo. Now... Before we get underway today, I'm gonna warn you, today's gonna be a bit of a short one between getting everything ready for the big goat hunt, I'm leaving in three days, and getting everything tidied up at work so that I can leave for a week with a clear conscience. I didn't have a whole lot of time to prep for today's episode, so I'm gonna wing it and we're just gonna see how it goes. First off, as always, thank you for the likes, comments, shares, and subscribes on whatever platform you choose to enjoy this content on. If you need to get in touch with me, j at mindfulhunter.com, Instagram, mindful underscore hunter, YouTube, mindful underscore hunter. My website is mindfulhunter.com. All right. Training update. Hiking is going phenomenally well. I'm weighing in at about 258, 260 pounds right now. So between me and a 50 pound backpack, that's 310 pounds running up and down the mountains three times a week. My cardio is feeling great considering the size I'm at right now, and even not considering the size I'm at right now. I just feel great overall. So I'm just going to keep on keeping on. One tip, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'll give it again. When it comes to the last week before a hunt, I prioritize recovery over training. And I'm going to give a quick analogy. When I was in university, it took me a little while to dial this in, but I realized that in the hours leading up to an exam, I was better off trying to relax and doing things I enjoy than I was trying to cram a little bit of extra information into my brain. Because if I walked into the exam in a calm, relaxed state, I was more likely going to be able to recall the shit that I already knew. And if I walked in there stressed out from cramming up to the last minute, not only would the stuff I tried to cram in in the last couple hours be useless, but the stuff I'd actually learned in the weeks and months leading up To the exam would be more difficult for me to recall. So much like that, I think it's more important to enter a hunt feeling good, and that can be a bit of a head fuck because I tell myself all the time that if I don't train, it's a lack of discipline, and the voice, the voices inside my head just don't shut the fuck up unless I'm training, and it it, it requires effort and and mental discipline to make myself not train. So. That being said, this week was particularly busy week, so I didn't train yesterday and I'm not going to train again today. I just don't have time. So the ultimate goal is I'll probably get in two hikes this week and maybe one day at the gym, maybe two days at the gym if I'm if I'm lucky, but I doubt it. Um, and that's totally okay because I want to hit the mountain fresh, recovered and energetic. I don't want to hit the mountain beat up because that's not going to help anybody. And that's a nice segue into the diet conversation. So coach lifted my carbs slightly, just added 20 grams cooked weight to all my carb meals across the board on training days, which I've been following. I will be completely honest though, when it comes to the week before a hunt, I kind of just let every other rules go out the window and I chill out. A it's important for me to spend time with my family before I leave. Cause it's going to be kind of more difficult on them when I'm, when I'm gone and I'm going to miss them. So i would probably go out for dinner once or twice throughout the week, just because it's an enjoyable thing to do with the family. Maybe we'll have dessert once or twice during the week when we wouldn't normally, because again, it's an enjoyable thing to do with the family. There's that element of it, but there's also the element that if possible, I'd actually like to hit the trailhead, like with an extra one or two pounds of like water and glycogen from like maybe overeating a little bit the last three or four days. Cause I am literally going to shed that within the first day anyways, so just like from the training perspective, I would rather show up recovered. From the dietary perspective, I'd rather show up well-fed. Um, and I think those are, both of those are somewhat counterintuitive because I think people restrict calories going into a hunt thinking the lighter I am, the easier this will be. And while that's true to a certain extent, there's a point of diminishing returns. If you don't have the proper you know, calories, you're not going to have the actual energy to expend in the first place. So it's not going to matter how light you are. So I just think those are kind of interesting things to, to keep in mind. And that's really all I'm going to talk about diet and training this week. As always, any questions hit me up. Okay. So for the gear corner, uh, I, <laughs> people on camera are kind of laughing because I'm holding up a small blue kitchen sponge. And everybody's going to be like, well, why, what does a kitchen sponge have to do with hunting gear? So I've actually seen this crop up in two or three different places. First though, it occurred, it came to my awareness through a guy who messaged me on Instagram, just said, really liked your content. Um, I've actually done a goat hunt in the area where you're going. So I had a chance to kind of have a bit of a conversation with him. And one of the questions I asked him was, what was the piece of gear you brought that you most valued? And what was the piece of gear you didn't bring that you wish you had have? And his answer to the second question was a cloth or a sponge. And I was like, this is this is interesting. You know, expand, please. And he said, because of the humidity in the area and the, 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 the shifting temperatures, he's like, basically, you're going to wake up every single morning. It may be frozen, it may not, but condensation on the inside of the tent. He's like, normally it's frozen when you wake up. Uh, by the time you start to make your coffee and and roll around and get out of bed, it's all going to start to melt. And it'll basically just start dripping down on top of you. And he said, I wish I had a sponge. And he actually said a cloth. I heard another guy bring up a sponge. Uh, He said, I wish I had a cloth to just wipe the condensation down every morning. And then I saw the sponge idea from somebody else. So I went and got a kitchen sponge. So quick tip for everybody. It weighs absolutely nothing. And I'm thinking it's going to be handy for all kinds of stuff. I'm surprised I haven't had something like this in my pack before. I've carried those ultralight um, towels. They're like kind of chamois material, kind of like not. And to be honest, I never really found they work that good. So I stopped carrying those a while ago. But that is my gear recommendation for the week. A blue kitchen sponge. All right, let's dive into the last week prep, because I think this can either be a very stressful time or a very relaxing time. My particular brand of OCD likes organizing things. So if as long as I give myself enough time and take the appropriate steps, I find this to be a very soothing experience. And I'm in a good spot this week. Even though if I was to pan the camera around, my office looks like a fucking nightmare right now. Um, it's an organized nightmare. I know where everything is. So the bedrock of everything for me is my spreadsheet. I always have a hunt plan spreadsheet for all my hunts. Initially, it was just a gear list, but then it started evolving, and now it has my to-do list. It has my shopping list. It has anytime I, any I anything I don't want to forget, any numbers that are important. I put in that spreadsheet in a variety of different pages so that anytime I need information regarding the hunt, I just open up that spreadsheet and it's all there. Um, if anybody's interested in the template, you know, just hit me up via DM or comment or email, and I'll happily like scrub the data out of mine, um, and send you a blank version. the reason I say that that's the bedrock of everything is that because I've built so many of these, I always just start out a hunt with an old version. And I know most of the stuff that's important is going to be on there. And I start building these like a month or two months out, sometimes even more. If it's, if I got three or four months to kill, I love waking up in the morning with a cup of coffee and like starting to build a gear sheet for an upcoming hunt. So I feel very confident because I've had so much time that everything I need is on that sheet. So what I will do is because I live in a townhouse, downtown Vancouver, I don't have the luxury of like a big garage where I can have access to all my hunting gear at at the same time. So I have to keep everything in totes down in storage lockers. So, and I also have a storage area up here in my office. So what I do is I, I keep my like long-term storage stuff out of the office and the stuff that I'm likely going to need within the next three to six months up here. So at this point during the week, And that's why it's a nightmare right now. I pull everything out that I could possibly need. And then I will start organizing it into piles on the floor. And that's when it will become apparent that something's missing or I don't have enough of this. Or for example, this week, I need to run to mech. I need to pick up a couple of food items, very minor things like extra snacks. And I need to pick up fuel canisters for my MSR reactor. I do have some Jetboil fuel canisters and they do work, but I want a specific size of fuel canister because I'm gonna be using a lot of fuel because I'm gonna be melting snow. So I want the 240 gram ones and I'm planning on one of those every other day. So I'm gonna bring three of those in total and then probably have some more back at the truck and maybe an extra 100 gram one in my kit. The weather is not looking crazy cold. So I do think I should be able to get a substantial amount of water out of the rivers up there, but I don't want to depend on that and then be proven wrong. So I get my spreadsheet. I put everything out in piles and then I start and I color code the the spreadsheet. So the first run through the spreadsheet, I'll highlight everything yellow that I have that I can see with my eyes on the floor and like, okay, it's all here. And if there's a couple things that aren't yellow, um, I go to the store and get them and I make sure to do it a few days before. Here's another tip. Try not to stop at a store on your way hunting. I do these big, long road trips and I'll be like, oh, just stop at Cabela's and it fucks your whole day. You're already trying to drive 12, 14, 16 hours. And like A small stop at Cabela's could take you like two hours by the time you get off the highway, go into the store, take a bathroom break, grab something to eat, get back in the truck, get back on the highway, depending on what city you're in. And it's just a nightmare. And it adds a lot of like stress and time to a day that shouldn't, that should be well-planned and doesn't need to be stressful. So I try really hard to have everything I need taken care of in advance. So now everything's on the floor. I've noticed the two or three things that are missing. I've went to the store and I've picked them up. Everything is now yellow on the spreadsheet and everything's laid out on the floor. Different hunts require different packing mechanisms. So I'm going to refer specifically to this hunt. For example, packing for a bivvy hunt is much different because you're going to be back at the truck every two to three days. For that example, I would pack everything in totes. And then I would just At the beginning of the day, I would pack up my bag with what I needed for the next three or four days and I would rinse and repeat that system. That's not what's going on in this hunt. I will be leaving the truck. I'll be going in for seven days and I will not be coming back out to the truck until I'm done. So I will pack my bag as it will be when I head in on the hike here at the house, perfectly the way that I want it. And I'm gonna get into that in a moment. As I put everything in the bag, I will also say on my spreadsheet, I have different areas for things that I'm going to want in my bag, things that I'm going to wear and things that I'm going to keep in the truck. So I'll even have a spot for like my laptop and my wallet and just if it's on the spreadsheet, I don't stress. So I literally put everything I could need on that spreadsheet. So we'll get back to the actual packing of the bag in a moment. But as I put everything in the bag or in a tote or in a duffel, so for this hunt, I will, I will have one backpack, one tote, and one duffel bag. As everything gets loaded into one of those three items, I turn it green on the spreadsheet. So theoretically, I'm leaving Saturday afternoon. By Friday afternoon, everything's green, and everything is in one of those three devices. And then I'm done. I can check out. Here's a pro tip for you guys with families the last day before you leave should have zero hunting prep in it because that's your time to spend with your family. I've fucked this up before, ended up getting in a fight with my wife because I wasn't paying any attention to anybody and I was too stressed about the hunt. And it really starts the hunt off on a sour note. And it's just not fair to your family. You're the one who's getting to leave. So We need to figure out a way to be prepared so that last day you can focus your time and energy on your family. Trust me, this is gonna pay off big time in the long run because that's what they're gonna remember. They're gonna remember that you're present before you leave. So the next time you ask to go away, there's gonna be less friction. This is really important and I've fucked this up more than once. So I really try and focus on this now. So by Friday afternoon, everything's done. It's in those three totes, truck is fueled up, I'm ready to go, everything is sitting up in my office, all I gotta do that next day is literally take those three things, throw them in the back of the truck and leave. One more quick tip, cords can be a pain in the ass because you're gonna pack everything away with the cords that you need. And if you're pre-packing your backpack, I'm gonna be staying at hotels two different nights before I actually start hunting. Maybe I'll spend a little time talking about that right now. So my game plan is I'm trying to be as efficient as possible. So I'm going to leave Vancouver at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. That works pretty well for my wife because it's the daytime. That's a little bit trickier. By the time you get to four o'clock in the afternoon with a five-year-old, it's kind of like the day starting to wind down. She normally goes to bed at nine. So like you can kind of let her watch a couple of hours of TV. Dinner's going to kill an hour. You've kind of, you're hitting the easier part of the day. So as long as I'm here until four, I'm still, she feels like I'm here and present for that whole day. Even if I take off a little bit earlier on closer hunts, I'll even leave at like nine and, t- and 10 o'clock at night after my daughter's already gone to bed. So I'll leave at four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm going to try and drive probably six hours. I don't know how bad the weather's going to be. So it's really going to depend, probably try and make it to either Hunter mile house or Williams Lake pass out there for the night, wake up. That should leave me somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12 hours drive for Sunday. So let's say I leave the hotel at six, I'll hit Stuart at six, 12 hours later, give or take. Spend another night in Stuart. So I will have like a little separate go bag with everything that I need for the hotel stays that has nothing to do with my kit because I don't wanna be taking stuff in and out of my bag as I'm going in and out of the hotels because this is an opportunity for me to forget to put something back in or leave something at a hotel. Um, last year, if you watched my elk hunting video, you'll remember that I left the pegs for my Kfaru mega tarp outside at a at a hotel, and I had to like break twigs and use that for two separate nights. So leaving stuff at hotels is a very real <laughs> risk. I can I can speak from experience on that. So I pack up this little extra go bag and it will have some toiletries, a change of clothes, and any cords I need. That's really where this idea kind of sprung from because I kept digging in to get cords and pulling them out. And then I'd get back in the backcountry. And I'm like, fuck, I left that iPhone cord in the truck because I pulled it out to charge my phone on that last day and blah, blah, blah. So this little extra go bag just has all that stuff so that once I put things in my kind of backcountry kit, it stays there, it's green on the spreadsheet, and I never need to worry about it again. The idea is to simplify the system so that you can trust the system. So that essentially takes care of like the last week prep. Now, let's talk about the backpack. I might actually film this and throw it up as just like a separate little video next week. Uh, Well, it won't be next week, so I'll be hunting, but potentially the week after. Um, There's no rocket science to this, but again, I'm gonna limit my recommendations to a, let's say, seven day plus backpack hunt where you're going in for an extended period of time. Think about weight distribution. You don't want all your super heavy stuff right at the bottom. So what I tend to do is start off with my sleeping bag in the very bottom. Now I'm taking a synthetic bag. If it was warmer and I was taking a down bag, I probably wouldn't do this because I wouldn't want everything compressing my down bag. What I might do is put my spare clothes at the bottom or something else that wasn't as heavy and would kind of get the more dense items up closer to the middle of my back. After that point, you're really just thinking about how often do I need this stuff? The stuff that you need more often, you pack closer to the outside. So things like my kill kit, I bury at the bottom of my bag because I know I'm only ever gonna need that once. And if I need it, I'm gonna need to empty my bag anyways because I'm gonna be filling it up with meat. My camera accessories, I keep somewhere close to the top. My possibles pouch, I keep somewhere close to the top. Now, food. I pack each day's food individually in one gallon Ziploc bags. I then put for this hunt all seven of those day bags inside one dry bag. I will take the day's food out in the morning and put the previous day's garbage back in. And then I will put that dry bag close to the middle. Cause I know I'm not going to need to touch that again until the next morning when I go to swap out day bags of food, other things that, that can stay fairly buried are like your shelter and your sleep system, because you're only going to need to keep those out at night. I don't take much for extra clothes. What I do take, I put in a dry bag and I bury that pretty deeply too, with the exception of maybe an outer layer. So for example, um, I'm going to be wearing long johns and rain pants on the bottom 99% of the time, and I'm going to be wearing a very light synthetic hooded top underneath a Sitka Kelvin active jacket on top 99% of the time. So the one piece that's going to be put on and off quite regularly likely is either my rain jacket or my Sitka Kelvin hoodie, which is like my bomber, almost sleeping bag-like jacket. Now, the hoodie I will likely only put on when I sit down to eat or glass, so it can stay a bit deeper. The rain jacket might get taken off a little more regularly, and I'm not worried about the rain jacket getting wet. So the rain jacket typically goes in the lid of my backpack. So again, We could really have an infinite discussion about this, but there's like a couple key principles that I, and what I do is when I lay all the stuff out on the floor, I literally look at the piles and I say to myself, like, how often am I gonna need this stuff? Optic stuff usually goes in last because it's the stuff that, depending on the type of hunt, I'm gonna be stopping and taking out most frequently. Now, my binos, I wear on my chest, so I always have access to those, but my sitting pad, my tripod and my spotting scope normally go in the wing pockets of my Kefaru fulcrum because that way I don't need to dive into the belly of the bag and like rummage around. I just open up those wing pockets and I've got everything I need. In addition to that, I normally have room for my coffee mug and my one liter Nalgene. So I've literally, I can just stop in glass. I can have a sip of coffee. I can drink some water and everything is available. So like I say, I may do a quick video on this depending on how much time I have. I, if I don't have time, I just don't have time. Um, but but those are the general principles. So evenly distribute the weight. Try not to have all the super heavy stuff at the bottom. Put some filler stuff just in that bottom kind of one quarter of the bag, then the heavier stuff, then the stuff that you're going to access more often. Um and then do all your compression straps down and take the time to tighten your, to like roll up your your excess compression straps. I use these little Velcro, they're like six inch Velcro strips and I roll them up in the compression strap and then kind of loop it over one end. And that way I hate the sound of slapping, you know, extra compression straps when you're closing in on a stock or even when you're you're kind of coming up over a rise, you don't know what's gonna be on the other side. So taking the time to do that just keeps your whole kit kind of cleaner and neater. All right, time for the rifle conversation. So a couple of disclaimers right out of the gate. I am not a gun nerd. I am not super educated when it comes to rifles. I don't do my own loading. So I'm not an expert in this field. I do feel more accomplished in the archery field So I feel a little bit more comfortable giving people buying recommendations when it comes to archery gear, because I feel like I've spent more time educating myself in that area. So just full disclosure, take everything I say with a grain of salt when it comes to rifles. Now, that being said, I'm lucky enough to have a few close buddies who are self-admitted gun nerd. So most of the decisions, in fact, all of the decisions I make when it comes to rifles, I always bounce them off of a couple of friends first. Okay. So let's start with the actual rifle. I think the best bang for your buck is a Tika T3X, specifically the stainless light variation. Now in recent years, Tika has started releasing some kind of more quasi custom options. Like they have the strata and which is, Oh, which has like a, a camo stock and a Cerakoted barrel. And I think it's got a muzzle brake on it. And there's another one, a a kind of extra light one that somebody else just got that I'm not familiar with. So within that Tika T3X family, There may be a couple of deals on one of those, but the reason I say that the stainless light in particular, in Canada, that's a $1,200 rifle. In the States, it's like a $750, $800 rifle. So we're gonna just call that like a sub-thousand-dollar rifle because everybody does everything in USD anyways. In my opinion, there is not another rifle on the market that gives you the same construction quality, reliability, and accuracy for that price tag. Now, people are very opinionated and follow brands. I know Savage just came out with a new ultralight rifle. I haven't shot it. So I'm not saying that there isn't competition for that. But when I did my research and bought this particular gun, that was the conclusion that I came to. And it seemed to be a pretty popular consensus. Like a lot of people agreed with that as as a good rifle for that amount of money. Now, as far as caliber, I originally bought that rifle in a 308 to build a blacktail gun. It had a two inch shorter barrel and a 308 is a short action cartridge, which I thought mattered on the T3X, but it kind of doesn't because they just build one base model, which is long action. And then they just kind of put a plug in for the short action caliber. So you save the length on the barrel but it's only like 2 inches between that and going to a long action like a 30-06 or a 300 win mag. So I bought the 308. I had that for a couple of years. I really liked the 308. I put like a kind of uh, basic Viper HS scope on it. No turrets, nothing like that. Killed a couple blacktail with it. Really liked it. Then I wanted I kind of wanted to step things up a notch. I wanted a gun that would reach out further and had a little bit more punch when it hit. Now Everybody's going to have their own opinion when it comes to this. I don't really care to get in a debate about it. I've chosen to go with 300 Win Mag. Some people talk about too much recoil, and you know what caliber are you going to be the best shot with? I'll get into some of the modifications I've made to this gun. I I could shoot this gun all day. I just went and zeroed it in. I shot 20 rounds in about 45, 50 minutes shoulder didn't hurt at all i wasn't flinching at the end so i think that's something everyone has to answer for themselves i really like the 300 win mag platform i like that it's readily available ammo i like that it's really tested um i like the delivery power the kind of momentum even out at distance there's rifle there's uh bullets with better ballistics that's not debatable um but they're also smaller caliber and they kind of carry less momentum when they, when they get out at range. So I've decided, um, for me, the best all around caliber is a 300 wind mag. I'm actually selling my Tika T3X 308 and I've Cerakoted the barrel. Um, so if anybody is interested in buying that, shoot me a DM, um, it's still for sale. So Tika T3X 300 wind mag. Now, I did have an aftermarket muzzle brake installed on it that cost me about 500 bucks. So I'm not going to include that in a rec- this recommendation, cause it would kind of kick it out of that, like $2,000 package kind of price range. Um, and I don't think it's necessary. It doesn't increase the accuracy of the rifle. Um, it does increase, decrease the recoil of the rifle to a certain degree. Um, but I shot it before the muzzle break and it didn't bother me then either. And some people don't like brakes, especially people who guide because guides ears tend to take the biggest beating from muzzle brakes. So I did have one installed, but I'm, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, or I wouldn't strongly recommend it. Um, especially if you're strapped for cash. The other thing that I did is I replaced the, uh, pad on the stock with a limb saver recoil pad it's like 40 bucks if you're going to get tika parts there's this awesome company out of bozeman called mountain tactical and they basically make all these cool tika replacement parts you can like bling it out and you've got different bolt throws and all kinds of cool stuff but that's where i got most of the extra parts for my tika so i put on that limb saver pad and i also bought a picatinny rail for where the scope uh, goes from, from them. That's really nice. And I forget why they do something a little bit different when they're with theirs. I think they make it specifically for the T3X. So it has the pins in the right place. So it never slides around. Uh, next I recommend Seekin's rings, Seekin's scope rings. I think mine were about 140 bucks us. They're a really high caliber really high tolerance scope ring there's ones you can drop a lot more money on I, I they're not the most premium on the market for sure but they're very very good for what you pay for they're very solid um they're easy to install so i recommend Seekins scope rings and that's basically all i did to the gun when i had my 308 i found the trigger was a bit heavy and the tkt t3x's are very simple to modify um It's like just a couple small Allen wrenches and you can lighten up the trigger pressure. I've never had that problem with the 300 Win Mag. The trigger pressure was quite light to begin with. um, And I was getting good surprise shots on a fairly regular basis. So I just left it well enough alone. Um, Finally, scope choice. So what is on there right now is a Vortex Viper PST Gen 2. I will say, I really like this scope. Again, not a gun nerd. One thing I like about the scope is it's a first focal plane, which means, um, how do I describe this? Well, with a second focal plane scope, your hash marks only work at, I think it's minimum magnification or maximum magnification. And see, that's why I don't like having to worry about this shit because then I don't have to remember it. But as you magnify or demagnify the scope, it changes the distance that your hash marks actually measure out in the field at various distances. With first focal plane scopes, you don't have to worry about that. Now, that being said, there's not a lot of other first focal plane scopes in this particular, I would call it price category. So I, that was not a, is not a deal breaker for me. And in fact, I'm looking at switching scopes and I'm probably going to switching scopes to one that's not first focal plane. So let's just say again, much like the muzzle brake, it was a nice to have, but it wasn't a need to have. Other than that, there's a I, I quite like the adjustability on the scope. Um, I haven't been on a ton of hunts with this gun, so I can't say that I've like beat it up and really tested the zero holding capabilities of it yet. But it seems to be holding up quite well. It has um, it's a lighted scope, which I've never had before. And it has fully adjustable turrets. That was the big step up for me as I wanted a turreted rifle. For people who aren't that familiar with guns, you kind of have two choices when putting a scope on your rifle. You can put a non-adjustable scope that you will zero at a set distance. And then when you go to shoot an animal that's not at that distance, you will have to measure down hash marks in your scope or hold over or under, depending where you want to hit it. So you basically have no ability to dynamically adjust where the crosshairs hit at different distances with a non adjustable scope. They're cheaper. They're a little bit, I guess, easier and simpler. And when I'm just hunting blacktail and everything's going to be under 100 yards in the BC forest, anyways, there's no need to have adjustable turrets. The argument against adjustable turrets is that you can forget to zero them. They can lose zero. You could bump them. Like there's a lot of stuff that it is, it's introducing another element or another variable for potential error. So that's what most people don't like about them. That argument doesn't hold a ton of water for me because it's like, well, if you can't look after your gear, that's your fault. That being said, if anybody's curious about what happens when you fuck up the turrets on a turreted uh, scope just go watch my bear video from last year where I placed a very poor shot on a bear. I didn't actually hit the bear. I just skimmed his ass, but it was because my turrets had got moved in transport. That's my fault. That's not the gun's fault. It's one of those things that I'm pretty sure only has to happen once to you because I so religiously check the turrets on my scope now. It's fucking ridiculous. Um, That being said, I would not buy if I was doing this all over again, I probably would not buy this particular scope. I really like a couple of the more affordable, again, I want to stay under a thousand bucks with my scope. So that's very limiting. When you look at the options, there's one particular night force. I can't remember what it's called the SHX something. I'll drop it in the comments. Um, after the podcast, that I think fits in that thousand dollar range that I've had recommended to me, I also like the Zeiss Conquest V four. I forget who just did the review, but somebody on Rockslide just did a really lengthy review, and they they called it the best scope on the market for under a thousand bucks. Um, and I can't remember who it was, but they're but but they're somebody who's worth listening to. I think right now, I think also the Loophole VX five HD. I'm not a big Leupold fan. I'm going to be honest. I don't like their binoculars. I don't like their spotting scopes. Um, just my personal preference. However, they make really nice scopes and I think they make really nice range finders. So it's kind of funny. You almost find certain niches within individual companies. That's like, I really like this one or two, these one or two things that they make. That's how I feel about Leupold. Um, the Mark five is a very famous scope, but again, that's way out of the kind of thousand dollar price range, but the VX five HD, I think is worth looking at that night force under a thousand bucks is worth looking at. And the Zeiss conquest, um, V four to stay a little bit cheaper V six, if you've got a little bit more money, I think are all worth looking at. And basically when you put that whole setup together, you're basically looking at a $2,000 setup that's going to be sub MOA or MOA, which basically means it should shoot one-inch group at 100 yards, one-inch group at two-inch two group at 200, three at three, four at four, five-inch at five, etc. I will say I took my Tika out and I was hitting a four-inch metal gong at 400 yards, no problem. Every bullet I shot was hitting that gong. So this thing's driving tax out to four or 500, no problem. And that's all for under two grand. Um, And it's all stuff that you could essentially just buy it. Like Cabela's really like it's, you don't need special, you know, you don't got to hunt for it. You don't have somebody make you make it for it. If it breaks it, you can just go replace it. Like, um, I really like that for a, for a bunch of different reasons. Now, the funny thing is now that I'm starting to shoot a little bit more, I do find myself, okay, well, what's the next step after this one? And that will be an interesting conversation to have, but not one I need to currently have. I have already spent enough money this year Um, and I'm about to upgrade my camera, which is a conversation we can get into at a, at a later date. But before we wrap things up, let's talk ammo again, not a gun nerd. And depending on how far you're going to shoot, I can understand there's strong arguments for different bullet compositions, like monolithic versus compounds all the rest of it um i like to keep things pretty simple i'm shooting a hornady precision hunter 200 grain eldx um i think there's some good arguments for that bullet i think there's some decent arguments against that bullet my rifle fires it extremely well and i feel confident that under 500 yards a 200 grain bullet is going to smoke anything that i that I put it up against, as long as I put it in the right spot, kind of regardless of the retention elements or what happens to that bullet after impact. That's where most of the arguments come into play between monolithic bullets versus non-monolithic bullets at different speeds. How is that bullet going to respond and behave when it punches into the animal, again, at different distances and different speeds? There's no one perfect bullet. It really has to do with like, How fast is the bullet going to be flying? How far is it going to go? And and what are you shooting it at? So I tried my best to pick a bullet that I thought would serve my purposes across the board from everything that I might hunt with the gun. So I'm happy with the bullet I've chosen. But again, I don't think there's any perfect answer for that. Um, I think everybody's kind of got to decide on their own. Loading is also another option, but that's a really deep rabbit hole that I'm just not prepared to go into right now. So that's going to be my setup for the goat hunt: Tika T T3, three T three X three hundred Win Mag Vortex Viper PST Gen two scope and Hornady Precision Hunter ELDX two hundred grain ammo. And in my opinion, for under two grand, that's the best setup money can buy right now. But I'd love to talk more about it. So if somebody has an opinion or you think you got a better setup. Post it in the comments below. Let's have a bit of a dialogue. I'd like to learn, you know, um, and maybe maybe there is an opportunity for, for me to improve my setup. And I, definitely in the scope, I would like to switch out the scope um, just because I'm not the biggest Vortex fan on the planet. And I, am, I would like something with just slightly nicer glass, even if it didn't have some of the bells and whistles that the kind of mid-range Vortex scopes offer. Okay, I think... That's it for today. I said it was going to be a short one and I probably rambled on way longer than I should have. Um, yeah, I'm leaving in three days for the goat hunt. Super excited. Couple of things. There will be no podcast next week. I had this little kind of fantasy that I was going to be able to pre-report, pre-record a podcast before I left and like schedule it for release while I was gone. And as like work started closing in and packing started taking place, I was just like, there's no fucking way. So there will be no podcast next week. However, I will have one directly following my return from the hunt. I'm gonna be recording a podcast as I go on the hunt. So I'm gonna have two main pieces of content from the hunt. I'm gonna have this semi-live podcast that I'm gonna record throughout the day, each day. And then I'm also gonna have the actual hunt film Normally takes me about two weeks to fully edit and upload one of those. But that podcast, I should be able to have up the Friday after I get back. So wish me luck. I hope everybody's doing well. Uh, As always, questions, comments, concerns, hit me up. If you could like, share, comment, subscribe, I would deeply appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in.